and welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the DJ, and with me today, I have the Professor. Hello. How's it going? I'm going pretty well. Fun day at the office? Well, I am. I've taken a long weekend, so... <laughs> lucky, lucky man. Well, no, not really. My girlfriend's not letting me slack off. <laughs> I might have taken a day off work, but I've still got to do the cleaning. <laughs> man. <laughs> That's got, that's rough, man. That's rough. Nah, not really. It's um, <laughs> not too bad. Yeah. And uh, for those who are wondering, where is uh, Debbie Boy? Um, he's taking he a bit of a. Oh, yeah, he died. I was going to say he took it to back, but yeah, he died. Yeah. <laughs> that would do. <laughs> yeah, too much gaming. Yep. <laughs> I think the VR, ch- VR chat killed him. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, he's uh, taken a break. Yeah. To uh, catch up with some of his uni work, I think. Yeah. The uni never ends. The uni never ends. Until you graduate. Ah, oh, true. But then, and the then middle... you still have nightmares that you're late for exams. <laughs> or the hex debt. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta pay off my hex debt. Hey, hex... It's just not as bad as in America. Oh, like, oh let... no one's gonna come after you for taking a long time to pay off your hex. <laughs> Unless you get that special letter from the tax department saying, um, you still owe us. Give us more yeah. money. <laughs> of course, they still chase you up about it, but they're not like going to throw you in jail for not being able to pay it. Yeah, that's true. True. Unless you're pulling a dodgy and not paying it when you should be. Yeah. Because we've got that, um, that system where you only start paying it back when you earn above a certain amount. Yeah. So I believe I have to double check, but with Hex, if you're earning above 50000 a year or whatever the amount is these days, I think it's gone down a bit, then you start paying back a certain percentage as part of your taxes. And if you happen to be making that amount of money and not paying your taxes correctly and not paying your Hex, they're going to come after you anyway for not paying your taxes. Yep. Hmm. But anyways, uh, so to Debbie Boy, um, yeah, uh, Good luck, good luck and uh, <laughs> good luck on your assignments and uh, Godspeed. <laughs> I do not envy him. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I've been um, having fun uh, hearing the news that uh, everyone's calming down. A couple of restrictions have been uh, lifted, like the toilet paper restrictions. Yeah, I'm just waiting for this weekend when the restrictions officially relax and for everyone to go great now i can go 50 kilometers from my house i have to go 50 kilometers from my house <laughs> like realistically everyone should be staying at home anyway unless yeah. they have to but they're just relaxing that a bit but what i reckon is everyone will be able, will be suddenly going out and doing stuff even if they don't have a good excuse for it oh yeah oh yeah yeah so i, I wouldn't you- be surprised to see another a second wave and another week yeah although it's going to be interesting i wonder how the beaches are going to be like over this saturday well they're getting pretty packed just before the lockdown so Mm. it is cooler now though (laughs) i'd be like ah i can't even go to i can't even go to the beach because it's so cold outside yeah miss summer (laughs) oh that's going to be a fun moment but um so first up, Professor, you've got a story about esports and Valve's attitude towards it. I do. 
So Valve has allowed uh, competitors into the is it CSGO uh, tournament, Road to Rio, who happen to be affiliated with Valve. This has obviously um, come up as a bit of a conflict of interest. So I found this uh, blog about it by the website GG Recon, and it turns out um, Valve is, is perfectly happy to ban people for match-fixing, but they are also perfectly happy to allow people to to play in the tournament, even if they've got a business relationship with Valve. Which, yeah, that's coming across as a bit dodgy. Yeah, isn't that, there's a, there's a word for that. What's that called? Bias? (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's so much for fair and fair, fair competition, huh, Valve? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and so they've also relaxed their rules a bit. They've changed the wording for the more recent events. What, what do they say? Now they say uh, for 2020, teams and players registering for the majors will be required to publicly disclose their business relationships with other participants and slash or the tournament organizer so that public conversations can be had about the value that leagues and other entanglements offer versus the risks they pose. Oh, that's going to be a very interesting... (laughs) Yeah. So in this case, I've decided that since MIBR and Yeah, two players who um, have announced a conflict of interest, can continue playing because they've announced it, which... You know, transparency is nice, but, but you know, do we, it doesn't what make really, for... Yeah, what what really frustrates me is this sentence—the sentence about how that so that public conversations can be had about the value that the leagues and other entanglement offers versus the risk that they pose. You just decrease the value of the league. Yeah, and you know, a public discussion. If we're out here complaining about these people with a conflict of interest, are they going to be kicked out of the league? Probably not. <laughs> nah, they won't. Nah. And what, okay, and where are they going to have this public discussion? On social media? Oh, oh no. <laughs> That's going to be a mess. Ah, uh, that is was it. Was that rule number one? Never put you. Never. Um. Never talk. To, never talk on social media about t- touchy subjects. Uh, uh, it's it's a very touch. I will say it is a very touchy subject, but I don't know, public conversations. Yeah, it's it's not going to work well. Yeah, I think this is um, this is the first I've heard of uh of esports having any sort of rot. So what I'd like to see is Valve take a strong stance against uh esports and well match fixing and conflicts of interest and not let this snowball because this shouldn't be acceptable in physical sport it shouldn't be acceptable in esport yeah 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 like cheating like cheating in the middle of a game is one thing but this this is just this this is cheating in a competitive league is not just one thing it's bad yeah you should never cheat in a competitive league you should never cheat at all unless it's agreed upon Yep. Like, I have no problem with people who want to cheat, cheating in a cheater's league. Mm-hmm. But they shouldn't, that shouldn't be a thing that um, gets into matches without, with people who are non-cheaters. Yeah, yeah. This is like the steroids argument, isn't it? Well, I suppose you could say that. Like, you know, the difference is doing steroids to improve your sports performance has a negative impact on your health. This doesn't so much. 
<laughs> Can you imagine all these players are like, hey, we got these uh, top-notch computers thanks to Valve. <laughs> Valve is paying for our computers. So you don't have that. <laughs> Well, maybe you could ask the Chinese. Maybe they have better computers. <laughs> no, not that chestnut. I think at um, esports events, everyone uses a supplied computer, supplied by the sponsors. So Omen or MSI or whoever is yeah. probably sponsors the PC. Yeah. Yeah. I, what do you reckon should What do you reckon should happen though? Like, should, do you reckon Valve will will do it though, or do you reckon Valve will just go, eh, eh, we'll. I reckon Valve doesn't aren't the type to take a strong stance about anything, which is disappointing uh, in some ways. In like in others, it well, I think it's uh, as the organizer of the Dota and CS:GO tournaments. If they aren't taking a strong stance, how can we trust that the um, strong stances are well? How can we trust that the leagues are competitive? Yeah, yeah. Not a, it's it's a pretty it's a messy it's gonna be very messy yeah yeah like I'm and, feeling oh sorry yeah, it's gonna be very messy and no matter who they have a conflict of interest with they should be disclosing that and it should be taken it should be a strong stance taken against people match fixing yeah so they are have banned players in the past for match fixing but it's only temporary bans and I think. I feel like uh, with physical sports as well, um, the punishments for match fixing are just the slap on the wrist. Yeah, and this is the danger with most of the like esports is a rising, it's a it's a it's rising faster than any other sport we can think of at this moment. That's the danger with most of these sports. Like, yeah, you gotta nip get... it in the bud. Get it yeah. now before the you, you lose your integrity. Yeah. If you don't get it now, then five years down the line, no one's going to believe you. Yeah. I'm seeing one of these. Uh, I'm, see- I'm reading through the article. There was also uh, an example by a guy named Andy who posted on Weibo, as I on Reddit. He was the founder of Flash Gaming and he like posted about multiple infractions that broke, that broke competitive integrity. And- yeah, this is quite a worrying statement here. Yeah. So MD has claimed that there are people playing payers from paying players, not playing payers, from other teams to match fix using cheats, um, using call out spots in a LAN environment, threatening people. What? What the hell? Oh, what? That should be an instant lifetime ban. <laughs> yeah. And cutting internet cables. What? <laughs> How the hell? <laughs> Yeah, like this is some teenage drama stuff. Like, like you see, you, you, like you would see this in a reality TV show, but not this. It, it's stupid drama with <laughs> thousands of dollars on the line. Yeah, threatening people's safety. <laughs> what the? Oh, what? What the heck? What's your? Uh, uh, so you said like I've ever, I've. Have heard, even heard that some teams pay around tens of thousands in Chinese yuan for the GOTV IP that allows them to spectate 10 players on the server with zero delay in online matches and claim that they can win or lose according to their wish. Yeah, so that's uh, poorly translated, I think. But what I understand from that sentence is that they have a um, a zero delay stream link and 
according to their wish, I think means that they're saying if someone pays them money, they will throw the match. <laughs> and that's match fixing. That shouldn't be allowed. Should never be allowed. Should never be done. <sighs> I'd like to think we're all more mature than that, but people aren't. So well, that's why we need strong bands. Yeah, that's a, and also the fact. The problem is there's heavy money involved. In I mean, um, it's if if you once you get a lot of money involved in this, like the the risk is um the the risk is not that high. I mean, look yeah, at the look so at e- in terms of esports, like yeah. I've just pulled up a prize tracker slot. This is millions of dollars on the line for the uh, the Dota International competition. How? Oh, how much millions are we saying? Uh, so the most re- according to Wikipedia, the most recent international has had over three, sorry, thirty-four million dollars in the prize pool. Oh, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So that's a funder from uh, the battle pass sales in the game, and uh, so people buy the battle pass and in-game purchases, and then twenty-five percent of the revenue made. From that battle pass, the compendium, goes to the prize prize pool. Yeah, and yet people still want to cheat, uh, even with that, even uh, with that line money. Still want to cheat? Thirty-four million dollars. Would you not cheat to get thirty-four million dollars? Oh, if nobody had any morals, everybody would be cheating. Yeah. So this is why like, most people have morals and won't do this, but enough of them will that it should really not. You know, this is. $34 million is such an insane amount of money. They need to maintain their integrity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but knowing like companies like Valve and stuff, it will take a while for them to get it sorted. Yeah. yeah. I'm hoping they, uh, they crack down on this sooner rather than later, but considering they seem to be being more lenient this year than in the past, I'm not hugely uh, confident about that. Yeah. And as I said earlier on, like it's becoming a, it's becoming a rising, rising commodity. And I've, I think I've recalled that they were thinking of putting esports into the um, Olympics at one point. So it's probably been talk about that. Yeah. One advantage of going to the Olympics would be that you'd be under Olympic level scrutiny for uh, doping and match fixing. Yeah. Yeah. And that will be, and that'll be interesting. Like with this and. In this for, with the Olympic style um, doping and match fixing scrutiny, it might oh, it might clean up the world of esports. It might not clean up the world of esports. Um, we can hope. Yeah, yeah. But if you imagine if this thing was to come out like days before or months before the Olympics, it, the Olympic Committee would have not taken the t- taken esports in. Yeah, so you know we already know the Olympic Committee are perfectly okay with banning entire countries for doping. Yeah. So you know I could imagine they would ban entire sports if it if something dodgy was prolific there. Yeah. So people, if Valve wants people to take uh, the international and the CS:GO tournament seriously, they need to treat it seriously. I agree with you there, man. Yeah. Um, anyways, moving along, I've got a story about a t- Green Lantern TV series coming soon. And no, this one will not have Ryan Reynolds as a Green Lantern. We all remember, we all cannot forget that moment when he when he wore Green Lantern outfit. Oh, that was a terrible, terrible movie. 
So um, Jeff Johns is to set to is set to produce a new Gr- Green Lantern HBO Max series. Um, his company Mad Ghost uh, Productions listed the project on their website along with the other CW, HBO Max, and DC shows. So Green Lanterns are DC characters. Yep, Green Lanterns are Green, Green Lanterns are DC yeah, character. Okay. Yeah, there are... uh, this guy's pedigree though. Has he worked on any other DC TV shows? Um, he's, um, made one called Stargirl. Never heard of it. <laughs> it's an old, um, it's an old, uh, comic book series as well. In a second. Uh, Jeff Johns has done that one. He's, I think, done a couple of comics as well. But Stargirl, apparently, it's been, um, from tr- from the reaction, has been pretty good. Yeah, Stargirl. So she's, um, originally known as the second sp- Star Spangled Kid. And she began using the name Stargirl after she was presented with the Cosmic Staff. That's okay. Best. Yeah. And uh, it looks like that won't come out for another couple of weeks. Yeah. So that might be why I haven't heard about it yet. Yeah. And so uh, Jeff Johns, he was also, he, he's worked on a television series including Blade, Smallville, um, Arrow, and The Flash. He was the co-producer of the Green Lantern, the first Green Lantern movie, and uh, he co-wrote the story of Aquaman and screenplay for the w- recent Wonder Woman movie that's coming out soon. Okay, so this is very up and down. Yeah, yeah. So um, he goes, two different lanterns are set to be featured along with their series favorite villain Sinestro, uh, both Berlatini uh, and uh, John. Thank you. For Belanti and Johns know a ton about Green Lantern mythos and each seem eager to get the ball rolling on the new show. Like with with the Green Lantern series, there is a huge, huge level of um, mythos you have to consider. Like, for example, there's the Green Lantern Oath. Um, there is also the rules you have to follow, the the League, the, um, League of Villains in the... What's that? Um, oh... Uh, the League of Villains. Oh, I'll put that there. Um, there is also the fact that you have to um, go through the, pe- the each lantern's backstory, and they're also another another story to tell as well. So it's going to be interesting seeing um, seeing this made into a TV series. Yeah, I feel like a TV series would give them a lot of space to explore the different lanterns. Yeah, yeah. As you, and you're Sorry. right. He, oh. And like, you're right. He- I could see it being an anthology or a ensemble show where they've only got two uh, green, la- two lanterns. Yeah. So he's ba- so Jeff Johns um, adds in saying, "You look at everything that worked and didn't work on anything." Um, and he's he'll go. He says, um, "Like revamping a character, introducing a character. I've done it a lot. Their creative kind of viewpoint and uh, and way into the character and rebooting and changing it and reintroducing it is informed by everything." It's informed by comics and both what works and what doesn't work. I don't want to spoil any of the story there, but if people like my run on Green Lantern, then hopefully they'll like what I'm doing. So, yeah. So, hold on. If people like my run on Green Lantern, they will like what I'm doing with Green Lantern. Did you <laughs> read that wrong or did I hear that wrong? Or did he, did he just say something that dumb? I think, yeah, he's basically... So, uh, let, me just re- let me just say the sentence again. I don't want to spoil any of the story there. But if people liked my run on Green Lantern, then hopefully they'll like what I'm doing. Oh, he's um a comic writer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was confusing him and the guy you said had worked on uh, on Arrow and Flash and all of that. That's the same guy. 
Oh, okay. Right. So, yeah, he's done comics of Green Lantern. Yep. So, yeah, he should know the character. Yep. As consistent as comics are about that. <laughs> I will say this, though. Like, comic comic books on TV, they're a hit and miss. Like, you got Netflix, which have the Marvel Marvel ones, and they're good. But... Two seasons before they get cancelled. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But then with the others, though, I mean, Gotham did okay. Like, it finished on the high, which was good. Um, Flash is doing a bit iffy iffy there. Batwoman. My understanding is um, Flash started really popular. Yeah. And then got a bit got a bit away from himself and became a bit of a cash cow. Yeah, yeah. Like they even um at one point they had like a they had like a TV event called Crisis of Infinite Earths and um they had to include the movie flat the movie actor that played as Flash in Justice League to come into the show as well. So right? is that because it's Infinite Earth, so it's a parallel universe flash? Yeah. Or did they just forget about having at the flash, like T V flash? Uh, I think it's more the parallel universe kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, like DC, like um, with the Teen Titans TV series, um, that was a re- that was a weird, that was an interesting one. Like they had they had a couple of they had a couple of hits and misses, but it's going it's going okay. But yeah, like I said, t- like TV series and um, d- with DC and stuff, it's not it it's a hit and miss. So. But uh, with the story, he goes on to say, and right now I'm just writing the script and hopefully the script gets into place where Warner Brothers and DC, uh, Walter and everybody, they're really excited about it. And uh, when we get that right, then we'll move ahead on the project. John's continue, but we got to get it right. I hope he takes that seriously and actually gets it right then. Because... <laughs> If if you get it wrong, there are a couple. There are a lot of angry Green Lantern fans waiting for you. <laughs> uh, but what do you reckon? Would you watch it? Ah, uh, you know me. I'm not really into superheroes, so probably not. Give it a miss. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree with you. I was. Like, I saw the um, Krypton series. It was good, but yeah, it just didn't. It was good, like the first few episodes, but later on it just didn't work out right. So I, I agree with you there. Uh, and um, finally, for our last topic, uh, we have something about Lego and how it takes one thousand five hundred years to decompose. And no, folks, that's actually true. Does take and how this article calls it Legos, which is grammatically incorrect. <laughs> Someone go and just. <laughs> punch this guy in the face <laughs> so uh the story is basically alan turner an environmental scientist at the university of plymouth in england um decided to see if um chemical additives used to make lego have changed over time and the comp and to find out whether the composition of each brick contains clue on when it was made okay so, so they're testing um the Makeup of each brick to work out how old it is and how much it's worn down. Yep. But the thing is, it, plastic, you know, doesn't really wear down. It it goes um, microplastic. Yeah, yeah. We le- we know this. We were ki- like we were taught as kids, like, oh yeah, this is a uh, this uh, plastic takes thousands and thousands of years to break down. So 
Yeah. yeah. Um, but so- I think Lego is a lesser issue than plastic bags or anything because you don't throw away your Lego, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Although there are some, there there are some people that would um that that would just throw it out of ac- by accident or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Turner and his colleagues used an X-ray fluorescent spectrometer to measure the chemical composition of washed-up Lego bricks, which had been collected by beach cleanup volunteers in Cornwall, England, since 2010. Wow! 2010. That's going to be a lot of Lego. (laughs) So using the block's chemical fragments, the team identified the bricks manufactured around the 1970s. And one key chemical indicator was cadmium. Mmm, heavy metals, delicious. <laughs> so that, that those are used uh, to make bright yellow and red pigments from the early 1970s until 1980s, when it was phased out due to toxicity. So uh, the researchers assumed that the beach Legos were lost to sea around the time of their purchase. And to gauge how worn down that the beach Legos got during 30 to 40 years at sea due to, due to factors like sediment and sunlight, uh, researchers use X-rays to match weathered Legos with, uh, with pristine versions of the same bricks kept in collection since 1970s. Can you, okay. can you imagine like being, that do- being the person that donated the bricks, go like, those were my prized collection. I reckon they probably also just topped on eBay and bought like the ten dollar bucket of Lego that unsorted and <laughs> yeah, there's um there's people who just sell buckets of it online. Oh man. So across fourteen pair of matching Legos, the weathered version had three to forty percent less mass than their mint condition counterparts. And based on the measurements, it would take an estimated 100 to 1300 years to completely break down a single Lego brick. So when we wipe ourselves out with nuclear weapons and <laughs> the world is rebuilt by the squid people, they will be able to build that civilization out of our Lego. <laughs> uh, Lego land will be a re- thing (laughs) the whole world will be built out of lego (laughs) so so does that mean we'll get does that mean i know we'd we'd be dead and stuff does that mean they'll be start singing that lego movie song i mean there's no reason we can't start it now (laughs) oh dear god (laughs) but um i'm just reading through the abstract and it's also interesting um the infrared spectra indicate that the polymer remains um, largely intact on weathering, but with further de- degradation of the uh, polybutadiene phase of ABS. Uh, sorry if it's getting a bit too technical, guys. But uh, uh, so using measured mass of loss, uh, mass loss of um, paired equivalents and the age of blocks, the 130. So it's already basically the same thing, but they're just basically saying that they've at, they did more process to come to this conclusion. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can't, like this this just um solidifies the point that plastic doesn't break down. I mean, did you really need a, a Lego experiment to figure that out though? No, but it's interesting because Lego is one of the uh the ones that's harder to do without. Like we can replace plastic bags, but it's interesting to know what Lego is doing for us. Yeah, that's true. I wonder how Lego will react to this story though. 
Good question. No, I bet you they'll go like, eh, yeah, we'll, um, we'll, we'll do something. And then they won't do anything. Yeah. So, uh, and then I bet you also, I bet um, you will say like, nah, looks like we're not going to buy Lego in the future. Well, they are experimenting with uh, PLA and plant-based plastics. So, you know, this is evidence of its longevity, but they are also working to resolve this issue. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I will say that maybe that, maybe that might be a good move. Who knows? So only time will tell. Yeah, we'll see. So, um, Professor, what game have you been playing? I've been playing Noita. Noita is a, um, do you remember the powder toy genre? Uh, no. Falling sand, that sort of thing. Basically, physics simulations where each individual particle is simulated. Okay. So, it's that, but with a roguelite engine wrapped around it. So, they've taken this really cool system. I used to have a lot of fun just messing around with powder toy, but they've also then converted it to, like, added a roguelite game on top of it where your spells damage the environment. Uh, You can set fire to oil. If you jump in oil, you become flammable. You can wash it off with water. You can throw spells and they will trickle downhill and splash onto enemies. Um, Throw potions, I mean. You can dig your way through a cave if you want to. And then, like, that's not even the extent of how it works. Because you then go to... Um, so you then go to rebuild, like modify your spells and you get, uh, well, you can choose what spells go on your wands and mix and match and get the exact one that's customized for you. Nice. What's the uh, biggest flaw you've encountered so far? Uh, there's no, like, there's not a lot of tutorial. Um, I think being able to dig more efficiently would be nice as a, just by default. Okay. Um, I think the, uh, well, I mean, I need a lot more time to put into it because it goes deep. Like some of the tanks you can find are full of alcohol. You fall in the alcohol, you get drunk. You get drunk, (laughs) your spells shoot off at odd angles. (laughs) It's that in depth. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So it's kind of like real life. (laughs) Yeah. I imagine you'd be pretty flipping drunk if you fell on the tank of whiskey. Yep. <laughs> what are the other effects? Like you get the oil. So if so, if you if you go on oil, you get um you get flat, you get flamed. If you if you light yourself, what are the other situations you get yourself into? Uh so I've thrown um thrown potions of walls and had them splash back on me. Oh. Uh, Fire tends to spread a lot because the first couple of levels are set in coal mines and fire, once it gets into things, will just burn throughout the entire level and everything works its way down. So your goal is to reach the bottom of the level to find the portal to the next level. Mm-hmm. You also, um, But blowing up a tank of stuff will cause it to flow downwards and I've been in a situation where I couldn't physically reach the exit because I'd flooded it with toxic waste. Oh not good. Yeah and a really cool feature of it um, I shot a, a barrel of oil and the barrel must have been pressurized because it just started spraying um, you know spraying water or oil out through the uh 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The whole eye pierced in it, which is just a really nice touch. I know arrows would normally be under pressure, but it was a nice touch. Yeah. So how far in the game are you in? I've made it, I think, three levels in. Is, it, uh, I, so is, is there a story mode for this game, or is it still... Uh... Uh, kinda. I think it's all um, told in-game. In I don't think there's any cutscenes. I found a couple of um, cool items there that have uh, had like relics that have little bits of text attached to them. I haven't pieced it all together yet, though. Fair enough. So uh, how many nerdy beanies would you give this game out of? Five out of five. Oh, very nice. It is stunning. I saw a bit of the trailer, and that game reminds me of, I don't know whether you played this, um, Professor, uh, Lyrio. Oh, Lyrio. Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. And Lyrio actually just got re-released for free online. Really? Oh, I I want to get that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I had so much fun with that game. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to throw it in the... uh, the show notes there because it is a thing. Oh, uh, yeah. It looks like actually it's been out for a while, but I just saw a post about it the other day. Nice, very nice. Oh, I used to love playing that game. The banana bomb was my favorite. <laughs> the multiple explosions. Oh, I've been um, playing Total um, Total War Shogun Two. And do you like it? It's okay. It's beautiful to look at when it comes to graphics. Well, I've, re- I've started playing the tutorials, and there's so much to take in. Yeah, Total War games are pretty heavy. You can uh, auto-manage your cities and just have to really deal with the battles if you like. Yeah. Like, I started playing, I think, one of the factions, and I just go, and I'm just looking at the, uh, who do I, what do I do here, and who do I look at and stuff, and I'm going, yeah, I need to go through a tutorial. <laughs> Just to get, just to learn the, just to learn the ins and outs of this game, and even the tutorial just went like, whoa, there's a lot more to this game than I thought. Like I thought, it'd be, I thought initially it would just be like your uh, like Dawn of War, like a standard RTS style game, but this is a whole another level. Yes, you have to manage basically everything to do with your uh, your city, your civilization. Yeah, and you also have to help your allies and stuff as well. And yeah, the allies in that game are kind of for um, having awful diplomacy skills. <laughs> Never trust an AI to do a diplomat's job. <laughs> yeah, so um, it, it's better and worse in different games, but it's uh, it's one of those games where the AI is notorious for. Uh, coming at you when they have like one town left and being like, hey, we're going to totally crush you. Why don't you agree to be our vassals and we won't do it? Meanwhile, (laughs) you're stacked up on their town with hundreds and hundreds of units. Uh, uh, My biggest flaw with this game is the camera. Oh, it's such a pain just to like rotate the camera. 
Like it's not like in the other strategy games where you can just use the mouse to rotate the camera. In in Total War, you have to use like Z and X, and it doesn't rotate the way you want to. Okay. Yeah. I can't say I've ever really had that issue playing uh, Total War games. Yeah. It might just be something that I'm used to, and yeah. Yeah. And the other annoying part about the um, game is when you order like your your unit and you wanted them to turn left and turn right, and it's you would think by slim, simply clicking the turn left and turn right button, it would, they would just automatically turn left. But no, you have to hold it. And it, I'm like, ah! Yeah, positioning is a little bit finicky until you learn it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I tried to turn my units one um, in the tutorial to <laughs> to let just to do a wall formation and it doesn't it didn't work out right it just like it just does it just looks messy like it, it was just like one group was bunched in one end and there was no, nobody on the other end so it just looked really weird so um, will you play more of it uh i want to play more of it i would love to play more of it just to try and get the tutorial get through the tutorial and maybe try and a bit of the campaign um yeah but for now, I will say I would give this one a four out of five. Okay. Yeah. So what's uh, up next? Yep. On to our shout outs. So on the 27th of February, 2020, uh, Gene Dynaski, American actor, passed away at 77. He appeared in Steven Spielberg's Duel and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and played Easy Mandelbaum Jr., the son of Lloyd Bridges' character on Seinfeld. Uh, Dianowski was seen as Benedict, one of Egghead's um, henchmen on Batman in 1966. And on the 2000th episode of The X-Files, his character fell victim to a monstrous bat creature. Um, He also portrayed Joseph Stalin in the 1996 video game Command & Conquer Red Alert, appearing throughout much of the game's Soviet campaign and, to a lesser extent, the Allied campaign. Uh, he's one of the 32 actors or actresses to have guest starred in both original Star Trek television series and in one of the series spin-offs such as Star Trek The Next Generation. He died in Studio City, California. His death was not announced until the 24th of April of this year. On the 21st of April 2020, Jerry Bishop, Judge Judy announcer and radio voice actor veteran passed away at 84. Uh, American announcer, radio host, and radio personality, Bishop, best known as the announcer for the courtroom television series Judge Judy for 24 years from 1996 to 2020. He simultaneously began working as a voice act- voiceover artist and announcer during the 1970s. He was the announcer for the television series game show The Crosswits, as well as the NBC lived short-lived um, NBC series Dick Clark's Live Wednesday, which aired briefly in 1978. Um, he began working as an off-camera announcer for the syndicated television court- courtroom show, beginning with the series debut in 1996. He remained with Judge Judy for 24 years as the show became the highest-rated series on daytime television. Uh, Bishop continued to work on Judge Judy until a few weeks before his death in tw- 2020. Uh, Jerry Bishop has had has been a vo- the voice of our program for 24 years. Star um Judy Sher- Schild- uh, I, I will never understand. I will never pronounce that full surname. <laughs> Said in a statement, everybody loved him. He had a golden heart and gener- generous spirit. I adored him and we- and will miss him. And without him, who will tell us the cases are real? 
The people are real. <laughs> this is Judge Judy. <laughs> oh, I love that. I used to love that show. Like every time Judge Judy just go, just, just slams the, her desk and starts raising her voice, you know, like, not, don't, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Uh, he died from heart and kidney failure in Los Angeles, California. On 24th of April 2020, Fortnite uh, Travis Scott event sees 12.3 million players in first show. So the uh, event, dubbed Astronomical, saw 12.3 million concurrent players take part. Epic has announced. Um, taking to Twitter, the Fortnite developer also revealed that this is an all-time record for the Battle Royale shooter. In the lead-up to the event going live last night, Epic teased that one-of-a-kind musical journey for quite some time that debuted a, a new track. Scott isn't the first artist to make an appearance in Fortnite. Back in uh, February 2019, DJ Marshmallow put on a live concert performing a special Fortnite extended set. That's a that's pretty cool, though. I saw the video and it looked really awesome. Yeah, it's, it's interesting having a, a concert in a video game. Can you imagine this happening in, in other games? Like, imagine... World, World of Warcraft. I mean, I've heard of small gatherings like um, weddings and funerals being held in games, but never uh, something so so many people. And I would be really interested in seeing the um, what the networking team had to deal with. <laughs> It'd be like, oh my god, there's so many people. Our servers can't handle this. I mean, that's basically how a uh, accidental uh, DDoS goes. <laughs> yeah, I saw the. Uh, for those who are wondering how what the event is like, the we added on to our show notes, so you can have fun watching the event. It was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Ten minutes worth of it. Oh, only was the event only ten minutes? Yeah, the whole thing was just ten minutes. Wow! Like I was expecting, like a full fledged concert, like. An yeah. hour or something. Yeah, that's what I was expecting too. Yeah. Uh, so, so on the uh, 25th of April 2020, the Rolling Stones versus the Beatles debate continues into its sixth decade. That's a very, very long debate. Uh, it's an argument that dates back to the early 1960s and sharply divides the world into two camps. Uh, the ancient rivalry seemed to resume this week as Paul, Paul McCartney claimed the Beatles were bigger than the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger responded fri on Friday and pointed out that the Beatles were never a big touring band and unlike the stadium-filling Stones. That's the real big difference between these two bands. One band is unbelievably lucky, lucky still playing in stadiums, and the other band doesn't exist. Well, it doesn't help that half the Beatles are dead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Who's it left now? Um, Paul McCartney and... Ringo, I think. Uh, yeah. And George Harrison, maybe. Yeah, Ringo's still, still alive. Shot. Yeah. Yeah, uh, George Harrison, nah, he died. Okay. So Lennon's gone. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Lennon, McCartney, Harrison and Ringo. So John Lennon was murdered. Yep. Paul McCartney died and was replaced with a double. <laughs> George Harrison died of old age. <laughs> so we've just got Ringo left. <laughs> I, 
I don't know. This is a very interesting debate. I, I want to say like the Beatles have like good songs, but yeah, the Stones, the Stones, man, they had they had some really really big songs as well. Like I don't know whether, like what's that? What's my favorite? What's a good song they had from the Stones? I can't get no satisfaction. That was a really good song. What about you, Professor? Who who would you who would you prefer, Stones or the Beatles? <laughs> Ah, uh, well, my favourite Stones song, the version I listen to, isn't even played by the Stones. That's uh, Sympathy for the Devil. Oh, yeah. I listen to the, the Leibach version. Leibach is a Slovenian industrial metal band. <laughs> and the guy's voice goes so much better with it than the Stones version. Uh, I I don't like either of them enough to pick one over the other. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um... So, on to our remembrances. On the 27th of April, 1989, Konosuke Matsushita, a Japanese industrialist who founded Panasonic, the largest Japanese consumer electronics company. Uh, One of Matsushita's uh, best products was his invention of a more efficient battery-powered bicycle lamp. Uh, During the 1920s, bicycle lamps were candles or oil-burning lamps. They were highly ineffective as they only lasted for three hours. He created an oval lamp that used a battery for power and a light bulb for illumination. Uh, he had to personally market his products to retail bicycle shops. Matsushita learned an important lesson in terms of growing a company while he was trying to introduce the lamp. Uh, and he realized that even if he had a product that was superior to anything out in the market, it wouldn't matter if he could not tell the product. You know, it's crazy how many Japanese come from such humble beginnings. Like, Nintendo was a playing cards company. Panasonic was a bicycle accessory company. Uh, it, it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, like his stories, his story later on it becomes more interesting. Like uh, so, he began devising um, ways to create sales channels for his products by concentrating less on manufacturing and more on building a sales force. So he sold the product under the national under the brand National, and he turned, made it into um changed it to Panasonic, Quasar, and Technics. So from then, it became one of the largest manufacturers and sold on the world-known trademarks and clean Panasonic and Technics. In his retirement, I just developed, he focused on developing and explaining his um, philosophies and wrote 40, 44 books. One of his books entitled Developing a Road to Peace and Happiness Through Prosperity, which sold over 4 million copies. And he also developed a school called the Matsushita School of Government and Management, which was used to train future politicians and businessmen of Japan. And uh, he died from pneumonia at the age of 96 in Moriguchi, Osaka. Uh, and the interesting fact, he died with personal assets worth $3 billion and left the company with $42 billion in revenue business. Wow. <laughs> <coughs> yep. A lot of money. On the uh, 27th of April, 1992, Gerard K. O'Neill, uh, American physicist and space activist, as a faculty member of Princeton University, he invented a device called the particle storage ring for high-energy physics experiments. Later, he ex- invented a magnetic launcher called the mass driver. In the 1970s, he developed a plan to build human settlements um, in outer space, including a space habitat des- design known as the O'Neill Cylinder. He founded the Space Studies Institute, an organization devoted to funding research into space manufacturing and colonization. So uh, he, he made a um, paper called 
the colonization of space, um, which proposed the futuristic idea of human settlement in space and the O'Neill Cylinder as the subject. Uh, he held a conference on space manufacturing, and um, which many of them were um, became post-Apollo era space activists that attended that program. Uh, the first mass driver prototype was um, invented with Professor Henry Colm in 1976, and he considered mass drivers critical for extracting the mineral resources of the moon and asteroids. Uh, his award-winning book, The High Frontier, Human Colonies in Space, inspired the generation of space activists exploration advocates. He died from leukemia at the age of 65 in Redwood City, California. Do you reckon space colonization will will become a reality? One day. I can't imagine at some point there won't be someone trying to live in space permanently, but not for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, finally, on the 27th of April 2002, George Alec Effinger American science fiction author, his first novel, What Entropy Means to Me, was nominated for the Nebula Award. He achieved his greatest success with the trilogy of Marid Odran um, novels set in the 22nd century Middle East with cybernetic implants and modules, uh, allowing individuals to change their personalities or bodies. Uh, The novels are in fact set in the thinly veiled version of French Quarter of New Orleans. He made brief for forays in writing comic books in the early 1970s, mostly in Marvel comics, science fiction, fantasy, and horror titles, and again in the 19, late 1980s, including the first issue of a series of his own creation called, entitled Neil and Buzz in Space and Time, about two fictional astronauts who travel to the edge of the universe to find it contains nothing but an ocean planet with a replica of a small New Jersey town on its own on its only island. That's a pretty out there setting. <laughs> yeah. like, that's something I feel like I'd expect to hear from Douglas Adams. <laughs> Can you imagine just like in a small New Jersey town and the island, they each speak like a Bostonian accent. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, are we back in Boston? Uh, <laughs> we live on a water planet. Oh. <laughs> uh. The first issue was the only issue, and the story ended on a cliffhanger. Oh! <laughs> Damn. I want to know what happens. Why do they do this to me? Can you, oh, that, that sounds so bad. Can you imagine just asking, like, hey, are we going to get a sequel? Nah, it's not going to happen. He died from gastric ulcers caused an internal bleeding at the age of 55 in New Orleans, Louisiana. On to our famous birthdays. Uh, Casey Kasim. Kemal Amin Casey Kasim, American disc jockey, music historian, radio personality, actor and voice actor. He was notable for being the host of several musical music radio countdown programs, notably American Top 40 from 1970 until his retirement in 2009, and being the first actor to voice Norville Shaggy Rogers in the Scooby-Doo franchise. Wait, that guy has a name? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I see where he goes by Shaggy. <laughs> uh, that's from the 1969 to 1997 and again from 2002 to 2009. Uh, Kasim fr- co-founded the American Top 40 franchise in 1970, hosting it from its inception to 1988 
and again in from 1998 to 2004. As for his recognizable voice quality, he quotes, it is, it's a natural quality of huskiness in the mid-range of my voice that I call garbage. He stated to the New York Times, it's not a clear-toned announcer voice, it's more like the voice of, a, of the guy next door. He, he was born in Detroit, Michigan. Uh... So, uh, 27th of April, 1963, Russell T. Davies. Uh, Stephen Russell Davies, better known as Russell T. Davies, is a Welsh screenwriter, television producer, whose works include Queer as Folk, Bob and Rose, The Second Coming, Casanova, the 2005 <coughs> revival of the Doc- BBC One science fiction series Doctor Who, and the trilogy Cucumber, Tofu, and Banana. What? Yeah, that, that's the show. The trilogy and the trilogy Cucumber, Tofu, and Banana. Okay then. <laughs> Davies revived and ran Doctor Who after six after a sixteen year hiatus with Christopher Eccleston and later David Tennant in the title role. Uh, Davies's tenure as executive producer of the show oversaw a surge in popularity, which led to the production of the two spin-off series, Torchwood and the Sarah Jane Adventures, and the revival of the Saturday primetime dramas as a profitable venture for a production company. Uh, Davis was an appointed officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2008 for the services to drama, which coincided with the announcement he would step down from Doctor Who as the show's executive producer with his final script, The End of Time. Oh, that was a that was a very sad episode. Yeah. Uh, Davis moved to Los Angeles, California in 2009, where he oversaw production of Torchwood Miracle Day and the fifth and final series of the Sarah Jane Adventures. Yeah, he was born in Swansea, Wales. And uh, speaking of Doctor Who related, uh, on the 27th of April, 1986, Jenna Coleman. Uh, Jenna Louise Coleman, credited as the 2013 as Jenna Coleman, is an English actress. She's known for her role as Jasmine Thompson in the ITV soap opera show Emmerdale, Clara Oswald in the BBC series Doctor Who, Queen Victoria in the ITV drama Victoria, and Joanne Lindsay in the BBC series The Cry. Uh, Coleman went to went to play hard girl Lindsay James in the BBC school-based drama Waterloo Road, uh, Susan Brown in the, uh, in, in, in the television adaptation of the John Brain novel Room at the Top, and a couple of other series. And in uh, 2018, uh, she was not, for, the, for her role as Joanne Lindsay, she was nominated Best Actress in, uh, at the International Emmy Awards. Moffat chose um, her for the role as the Doctor's Companion because she worked the best alongside Smith and could talk faster than he could. She auditioned for the role in secret under the pretense of auditioning for Men on Waves, which is an anagram for Woman 7. She would first appear in the show's seventh series. Okay. She was born in Blackpool, Lancashire. Do you reckon she was the be- she's the best companion? Ah, uh, let's not start that fight. <laughs> <laughs> I like her. I think she was. She had ups and downs. I don't think she was the best overall, though. I don't know who I pick as the best overall because they're all so good. Yep. And uh, except for the new ones, who don't get any characterization. Oh, uh, I. I think I saw one episode. And I just went, "What? You really? Yeah. Uh, I, it's... Yeah. We. Uh, we can. We can do. We can make an an episode. An, a solo we... episode about this. So. We'll be here for hours. Yep. Yep. Fair enough. Uh, whether you like it or not, you can't deny there's some issues with the newer seasons. Yeah. 
so um, on our events of interest, on the 27th of April, 4,977 BC, the universe is created, according to Kepler. On the 27th of April, 4,977 BC, the universe is created according to German mathematician and astronomer Johannes Kepler, considered the founder of modern science. Kepler is best known for his theories explaining the motion of planets. In 1609, he published the first two of his three laws of planetary motions, which held that planets move around the sun in ellipses, not circles, uh, as had been widely believed up up to that time, and that planets speed up as they approach the sun and slow down as they move away. In 1619, he he produced his third law, which used mathematical principles to relate the time a planet can takes to orbit the sun to the average distance of the planet from the sun. As for Kepler's calculation about the universe's birthday, scientists in the 20th century developed the Big Bang Theory, which showed that his calculations were off by about 13.7 billion years. Just a couple. (laughs) Oh, Kepler would be like, dang it. I was so close. Yeah. The thing is, this was like, you know, the young Earth thing where the Earth is only 6,000 years old or whatever. This is about that length. So what I don't see anywhere in the article here is why he reckoned that that was the age of the universe. I think it was taking on the pretext under, oh, this was before Darwin, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so fossils would not have been a thing. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, I'm going to look into that more myself. Yeah, <laughs> so do I. So do I. On the uh, 27th of April, 1953, Operation Moolah offers 50000 to any pilot who defected with a fully mission-capable Mikoyan Gurevich MiG-15 to South Korea. The first pilot was to receive $100,000. This is American, by the way. But this is in, like, 1950s money, yeah. which is worth about a billion dollars a day. Actually, um, right, so right now, um, last year they calculated the thing. It's worth nearly $941,000. Okay, I was only off by one order of my <laughs> Fair enough. So um, Operation Moolah was a United States Air Force effort during the Korean War to obtain a defection... Through defection, a fully f- capable Soviet MiG-15 jet fighter. Uh, Communist forces introduced the MiG-15 to Korea on November the 1st, 1950. USAF, USAF pilots reported that the performance of the MiG-15 was superior to all United Nations aircraft, including the USAF newest, newest plane, the F-86 Sabre. Uh, speculation exists about the origin of Operation Moolah. According to then-Captain Alan Abner, the idea of the operation originated from his office at the Army Psychological Warfare Branch in Washington, D.C. According to intelligence reports, they received received dissatisfaction within the Soviet Air Force even to the extent of some desertions by disgruntled pilots led to the belief that possible future defections by some pilots was promising. Uh, their plan set off set forth an offer of a hundred thousand, which is now worth as earlier on uh, nine hundred forty one thousand, for a Soviet MiG fifteen and political asylum for the pilot. 
So on the night, two B-29 Super Fortress bombers dropped 1.2 million leaflets over communist bases in the Yalu River Basin. These leaflets were written in Russian, Chinese, and Korean. Uh, According to General Clark, immediately after the drop of the leaflets, UN aircraft did not make any visual contact of any MiG aircraft for the following eight days. Though the weather may have been a factor, he opines that the leaflets had a direct effect and believed that the senior communist military leaders began to screen for political unreliable pilots. Uh, Incidentally, after the leaflet drop, a radio jamming transmitter, whose location could not be identified, began to jam old UN-Russian language broadcasts of General Clark's MiG-15 offer. But Chinese and Korean broadcasts were unhindered. Would you do it? Oh, man. It would be hard, though. (laughs) You run away and leave behind everything you have at home for the hope of a better life, hoping that you don't get, A, shot down by your own team because they realize you're defecting, B, shot down by the um, by the West because they think you're attacking, <laughs> C, they take your um, airplane and just kick you to the curb, or D, being able to actually fit in when you've moved to a country where you don't speak the language, you're part of the enemy, blah, blah, blah. Oh, man, that that is a very, very huge sacrifice. Yeah. And uh, finally, on the 27th of April, 2015, Australians, that's right, Australians, uh, played for audiences in attendance of the Studio 35 Cinema Comedy Film Festival, written and directed by Joe Bauer, and and sci-fi comedy feature starred Rita Artman and Tamara McLaughlin, and here's the plot summary as provided by IMDb. And it goes like this. At the age of 10, Australian-born Andy Gibson had what she she describes as a close encounter with a flying saucer. Naturally, everyone assumed she was bonkers. That is, until one notable evening, 17 years later, when an airborne extraterrestrial armada launches a nationwide assault on Andy's home country, and at the same time, for unspecified reasons, kidnaps her mother. To add That's to so the, damn cheesy. <laughs> I guess funnier. To add to this deba- to the debacle, it seems that other nations of the world are far too insulted by their exclusion from the attack to come to Australia's aid. Now it's up to Andy, her hypochondriac brother Elliot, retired boxer cousin Keith, and documentary filmmaker friend Cam to stop the attack and rescue Andy's mom. Enlisting the help of Andy's equal parts mysterious and cringeworthy father, the gang must battle car-chasing spaceships, martial arts aliens, giant killer robots, and perhaps most frighteningly, a deluge of family secrets in their fa- in their fight to save Australia. Bloody hell, this is going to be a long night. <laughs> you didn't have to do the voice, okay? <laughs> But the plot, it's just, what the hell is this plot? I'm going to watch this just for just for the lulls now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to watch it just for the hell of it. <sighs> I'm, I'm surprised if the Razzie community didn't see this. It was it before the Razzies were a thing. <sighs> Anyways, uh, so you got anything else to add in, um, Professor? No, I'm, that's all I have for tonight. Where can they find us, DJ? 
they can find us on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. Um, they can also find us on That's Not Canon, where we got an archive of old episodes. And um, they can also check out the other um, That's Not Canon podcasts, such as Troubling Issues and That's Not COVID, which I believe it's your pet project. Yes, I um, I helped found it. I, I brought it up to the podfather and we uh, well, set the ball rolling and got everyone from that song can to join in. Except for you, DJ, you're slacking off. <laughs> uh, it never ends. Never ends. Um, so on that note, take care of yourselves. Stay hydrated and uh, see you next week. Hooray. He just stolen every one of my lines. <laughs> Look after yourselves. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.